Penguin Random House Audio presents Stranger Things, Darkness on the Edge of Town by Adam Christopher, read for you by David Pitu. For Sandra, always, and for Aubrey, because. December 26th, 1984. Hopper's Cabin, Hawkins, Indiana. Jim Hopper tried to kill the smile he felt spreading across his face as he stood by the sink, arms immersed in hot, soapy water, watching through the kitchen window as the snow fell outside in huge, fist-sized clumps. Christmas wasn't a good time, not for him, not since, well, not for a long time, not since Sarah. He knew this, he accepted this. And for the six years, going on seven now, he'd spent back in Hawkins, he had resigned himself to the growing feeling of misery and loss that steadily grew stronger and stronger as the holiday season approached. Resigned himself? No, that wasn't it, not quite. In truth, he had welcomed the feeling, allowing himself to be overwhelmed by it because it was easy, comfortable, and strangely safe. At the same time, he hated himself for it, for giving in, for letting the seed of despair in his mind grow each and every year until it fully blossomed. And his hatred did nothing but drive him deeper into the darkness. And the whole cycle went on and on and on. But not anymore. Not now. Not this year. This was the first year, really, where things were different. His life had changed and that change had let him see how far he had fallen to see what he had become. All because of her, Jane, his adopted daughter, legally, officially, his family. Jane Hopper, 11, L. Hopper felt the smile grow again, pulling insistently at the corners of his mouth. This time, he didn't try to stop it. Of course, having L around didn't mean he had to forget the past, far from it. But it did mean he had new responsibilities. Once more, he had a daughter to raise, and that meant moving on. His past wasn't gone, but finally he could let it sleep in the back of his mind. Outside, the snow continued to fall. The trees that surrounded the cabin now embedded a good two feet up their trunks in the soft white blanket. The radio had said it wasn't a storm, and there were no weather warnings, but the forecast Hopper had caught earlier in the afternoon now seemed a little optimistic. A generous dumping had been predicted over the whole county, but right now Hopper wondered if it had all landed in the few acres around his grandfather's old cabin. If you had to travel, the weather report had said, just don't. Stay inside. Keep warm. Finish off the eggnog. And that suited Hopper just fine. L, on the other hand, water's cold. Hopper blinked out of his reverie and found L suddenly by his side at the sink. He looked down at her, her expression so intense, so interested, so concerned that he had been standing at the sink doing the dishes for so long that the water had gone cold. Then he looked down at his hands, lifting them from the dying foam, his fingertips had turned to prunes, and the stack of dishes from their post-Christmas leftover feast hadn't gotten much smaller. Everything okay? 
Hopper glanced down at Elle again. Her eyes were wide, expectant. He found that smile growing again. Damn it, he just couldn't help it. Yeah, everything's okay, he said. He reached over to ruffle her mop of dark curls, but she retreated with a grimace at the touch of his foam-covered hand. Hopper laughed, pulling his hand back and slipping the towel off the counter next to him. Drying his hands, he nodded back toward the den. You managed to raise Mike yet? Elle sighed, with perhaps a little too much drama, Hopper thought. But then again, everything for her was still new, and often, it seemed, a challenge. He watched as she headed back to the couch and picked up the hefty rectangle of her new walkie-talkie, holding it out to him, like he could somehow conjure up her friends out of the ether. They looked at each other, then after a few moments, Elle waggled the walkie-talkie impatiently. What am I supposed to do? asked Hopper, slinging the kitchen towel over one shoulder. Is it not working? He took the device and turned it over in his hands. Can't need a new battery already. Nobody there. Elle sighed again, her shoulders slumped. Oh, yeah, I remember, said Hopper, recalling now that Mike, Dustin, Lucas, and Will were all out seeing extended family today. The whole gang was well out of range of Elle's new walkie-talkie. Elle took the device back and fiddled with the controls, clicking the volume knob on and off, on and off, short bursts of static emanating from the speaker with each turn of the control. Careful, said Hopper. That was a very nice gift they got you. Then he winced, realizing that his own efforts in that department, hungry, hungry hippos of all things, a game far too young for L, the realization hitting him like a sledgehammer as soon as she had pulled the paper off it yesterday, paled in comparison to the walkie-talkie that the boys had pitched in together to buy. It seemed he was well out of practice at fatherhood. He bought the game almost without thinking, because Sarah had loved the game, and, and L wasn't Sarah. But L didn't notice Hopper's discomfort now, so intent was her focus on the device. Hopper walked back to the sink and turned the hot tap on, stirring the water in the sink with one hand. And you had a nice time yesterday, right? He glanced over his shoulder. Right? L nodded and stopped clicking the walkie-talkie. Right, said Hopper, and they'll all be home tomorrow. In fact, he said, turning the tap off, you'll probably be able to raise them on that thing later tonight. With the sink refilled, Hopper resumed his dish duty. Behind him, he heard Elle pad back into the kitchen. He glanced down as she appeared at his side again. Hey, he said, submerging a dish from the pile. I know you're bored, but bored is good. Trust me. Elle frowned. Bored is good? Hopper paused, hoping he was heading in the right direction with this piece of ad-lib parental wisdom. Sure it is, because... When you're bored, you're safe. And when you're bored, that's when you get ideas. And ideas are good. You can never have enough ideas. Ideas are good, said L. It wasn't a question, it was a statement. Hopper looked at her again. He could almost see the cogs turning in her mind. Right, he said. 
and ideas lead to questions. Questions are also good. Hopper looked out the window, hiding his frown from his daughter. Questions are also good? What the hell was he talking about? He wasn't sure if he'd had too much leftover eggnog or not enough. L slinked out of the kitchen. A moment later, Hopper heard the click of the TV. Glancing over his shoulder, he saw she was sitting on the couch, the TV well out of her reach, but the channel cycling through in rapid succession anyway, the screen flickering from one wash of multicolored static to another. Yeah, it's the weather. Sorry, the TV won't be working for a while, I think. Hey, you want another game of Hungry Hungry Hippos? Hopper's question was met with silence. He looked back over his shoulder again to see Elle twisted around on the couch, giving him a look that could only be described as unamused. Hopper laughed. Just a suggestion. Go read a book, maybe. Hopper finished the dishes and pulled the plug from the sink. As the dishwater drained away, he dried his hands and looked up at the kitchen window. In the reflection, Hopper could see the couch and the still-on TV, with no sign of L. Good, he thought. He couldn't help the weather, but maybe it wasn't so bad being stuck in the cabin. They'd had a busy few days over Christmas, L spending time with her friends and Hopper taking the opportunity to spend some time with Joyce. She seemed to be holding up and had enjoyed his company. Jonathan, too. Hopper turned and headed over to the red square table that sat against the wall on the other side of the kitchen counter, where the open Hungry Hungry Hippos box sat. Idly wondering if you could play against yourself, he pulled out a chair just as Elle reappeared from her bedroom. She looked at him, her expression so serious, Hopper felt himself freeze, one hand still on the back of the chair. Uh, everything okay? Elle tilted her head, like a dog listening for a sound far beyond the range of human hearing, her eyes still fixed on Hopper. What is it? asked Hopper. Why are you a cop? Hopper blinked and let out a deep breath. The question had come out of the blue. Where is she going with this? Well, he said, running a still damp hand through his hair, that's an interesting question. You said questions were good. Uh, yes, I did, and they are. So? Hopper chuckled and leaned on the back of the chair with his elbows. Sure, I mean, it's a good question. I'm just not sure there's a simple answer. I don't know about you, said L. You know about me. Hopper nodded. That's, actually, that's true. Hopper swung around the chair and sat at the table. Elle pulled out the chair opposite and sat, leaning forward on her elbows. Hopper considered. I'm not sure I really wanted to be a cop, he said. It just seemed like a good idea at the time. Why? Uh, well, Hopper paused. He straightened his back a little and rubbed his unshaven chin with one hand. Well, I didn't really know what to do with myself. I'd just come back from... He paused again. 
Uh, no, not yet. That's a topic for another time. He waved his hand dismissively in the air. I wanted to do something, change something, help people, I guess. And I had some skills and experience I figured could be useful, so I became a cop. And? Hopper frowned. And what? Did you change something? Well, did you help people? Hey, I helped you, didn't I? Elle smiled. Where were you? Hopper shook his head. I'm not sure you're ready for that story yet. He suddenly felt a little tight in the chest, a small surge of adrenaline combining with the lingering effects of the last of the eggnog making him feel a touch of nausea. Now it was Elle's turn to shake her head. Questions are good, she repeated. She was right, of course. He had taken her in, helped her, protected her. Together they had been through things people couldn't even imagine, and now they were legally family. And yet, he realized that he was as much a mystery to her as she had been to him that night at Joyce's house, after he had found her and the boys in the scrapyard. Elle lowered her chin and looked at him, her head tilted, a response clearly required by the young girl. Listen, kid, there are some things you're not ready to hear, and some things I'm not ready to tell you about. Elle's brow knitted in concentration. Hopper found himself watching her in fascination, wondering where her train of thought would take her next. Vietnam? she asked sounding out the word as though she had never spoken it out loud. Hopper raised an eyebrow. Vietnam? Where did you hear that? Elle shook her head. I read it. You read it? On a box. Under the floor. Under the... Hopper laughed. You went exploring? Elle nodded. Okay, well, yes, you're right. I'd come back from Vietnam. It's another country a long way from here. Elle pulled herself up to the table. But, Hopper paused. Actually, no, this isn't a good idea. What? Telling you about Vietnam. Why not? Hopper sighed. Now there was a question. But what was the answer? The truth was, Hopper realized that he didn't want to talk about Vietnam, not because it was a trauma or a personal demon, but because it was ancient history. But more than that, it felt like part of some other person's life. Although he hadn't really stopped to consider it properly, he was aware of how he had compartmentalized his past in his own mind. So yes, Vietnam had been difficult. And he had come back changed, as most people did, of course. But it just wasn't relevant. Not anymore. That wasn't him. Not now. Because he had come to accept that there were really only two parts to his life. Before Sarah, after Sarah. And nothing else really mattered, Vietnam included. He just wasn't quite sure how he was going to explain that to L. Because, said Hopper with a smile, Vietnam was a long time ago. I mean, a really long time ago, and I'm not that person now. 
He leaned forward on the table, resting on his elbows. Look, I'm sorry, really. I can understand that you are curious, and I understand you want to know more about me. I'm your... He paused. L raised an eyebrow, cocked her chin again, waiting for the response. Hopper sighed, happily. I'm your dad, now. And yes, there is a lot you don't know about me, Vietnam included. One day I'll tell you about it, when you're older. L frowned. Hopper held up a hand, deflecting the retort he knew was coming. You'll just have to trust me on this one, said Hopper. You'll be ready one day, and so will I. But for the moment, we'll have to take a pass. Okay, kid? L pursed her lips, then finally she gave a nod. Okay, good, said Hopper. Look, you're bored, I know, and you have questions, that's good. So maybe we can find something else to talk about, okay? Just let me get some coffee on. Hopper stood and headed into the kitchen and got to work on the coffee machine, a relic he had found in one of the cabinets that remarkably seemed to work just fine. As he began filling the reservoir with water, there was a heavy thud behind him. Elle stood by the red table, dusting her hands on her jeans. On the table itself sat a large file box. On the side of the box were written two words, New York. Hopper hadn't seen that box for years, but he knew what it contained. He moved back to the table and pulled it toward him. Then he looked at Elle. You know, I'm not sure. You said find something else, said L. She pointed at the box. Something else. Hopper knew from the look in her eye, the tone in her voice, that she was not going to back down. Not this time. Okay. New York, New York. Hopper sat at the table and looked at the box. It was at least something a little more recent. Was she ready for this? Or for that matter, was he? As L sat across the table, Hopper flipped the lid open. Inside was a mess of files and documents, on top of which sat a fat manila folder bound with two sets of red elastic bands. Oh. He reached in and, without taking the folder out, slid the bands off and opened the cover. A large black and white photograph now faced him a picture of a dead body lying on a bed, the white shirt soaked to black with blood. Hopper closed the folder, then closed the box, then sat back in his chair, then looked at L. This is not a good idea. New York. Look, L. That was when the lid of the file box flipped open all by itself. Hopper blinked, then looked at L. Her expression was firm, unmoving determined. Hopper rolled his neck. Okay, fine. You want New York? You got New York. He pulled the box closer still, but this time he ignored the manila folder and pulled out the object underneath. It was a large white card, sealed inside a plastic bag, stapled at the corner to a single sheet of paper recording the particulars. Hopper stared at the card. It was featureless, then turned it over folding the paper sheet back around. On the reverse of the card was a single symbol, apparently hand-drawn in thick black ink, a hollow, five-pointed star. 
What's that? Hopper looked up. L had stood and was leaning over the box to get a look. Hopper pushed the box out of the way and held the card up. It's just a card from a stupid game, he said, laughing. Then the laugh died in his throat, and he looked back at the symbol. Actually, it's a game I think you'd be pretty good at. L sat back down. She looked at Hopper, and when he looked at her, he saw a light in her eyes. A game? We'll get back to that, said Hopper. He placed the card down in front of him, then lifted the file box and set it down on the floor next to his chair. Still ignoring the folder on top, he pulled out another pile of documents. The topmost form was a letter of commendation from the chief of detectives, NYPD. Hopper read the date at the top, Wednesday, July 20th, 1977. He took a deep breath, then he looked up at L. Before I was chief of Hawkins Police, I used to be a cop in New York City, a detective working homicide. L mouthed the unfamiliar word. Uh, yeah, said Hopper. Homicide means murder. L's eyes went wide. Hopper sighed, wondering if he really had just opened Pandora's box. Anyway, in the summer of 1977, something very strange happened. Chapter One The Birthday Party July 4th, 1977 Brooklyn, New York the hallway was white. Walls, floor, ceiling, the works. White on white on white. And it did nothing for Hopper except make him feel slightly dizzy. Snow blindness in the inner city. Imagine that. A whole house that was white, top to bottom, every room, every level. Outside, it was a Brooklyn brownstone. Inside, it was an art installation. Clutching his glass of red wine by the bowl, Hopper was terrified of spilling even a drop. Only rich people could live in a house like this, he thought, because only rich people could afford the army of cleaners it must need to keep it just so. Rich people who thought they were Andy Warhol. Rich people who were friends with Andy Warhol, or at least knew his decorator. And they had kids, too. Two of them. Twins, who even now were celebrating with a joint birthday party in the vast kitchen at the rear of the house, a kitchen that opened onto a lush garden surrounded by high walls, an impossible oasis hidden in the spaces between row houses, the greenery somehow surviving the baking summer heat that was turning the rest of New York into a dust bowl. The noise of the party reverberated down the Spartan hallway in which Hopper had sought solace, at least for a short while, with his ill-chosen drink. He lifted the glass and peered at the contents. Red wine at a kid's birthday party. Yes, the Palmers were that kind of people. Hopper sighed and took a sip. This wasn't how he had planned to spend the 4th of July, but he knew he shouldn't judge. The children, all 30 of them, nearly the whole of Sarah's elementary school class, were having a great time being entertained by a team of professionals hired just for the occasion by the Palmers, and being fed and watered and sugared by a catering crew that were probably being paid more for this one gig 
than Hopper earned in a whole month. It wasn't just the children who were being entertained, the adults were too. Somewhere down the white hall, through one of the many white doors, the parents, minus Hopper, were all gathered around a show put on just for them. Some kind of magic act, someone had said. Diane had tried to persuade Hopper to come along, had even tried dragging him by one arm, but a magic act? No, he was fine right where he was. Alone, in the hallway of infinite white, with his wine. A roar of laughter came from the kitchen, matched by an almost simultaneous roar from the other end of the hallway. Hopper looked one way, then the other, wondering which act to catch. Then, with a shake of the head as he chided himself for being a party pooper, he headed for the parents. As he opened the door at the end of the hall, he half expected to find beyond a white room with a white grand piano in the center, John Lennon at the keys, Yoko Ono draped over the top. What he found was another reception room, one of several within the brownstone, this one perhaps slightly less stark than the rest of the house, the white walls at least broken up by the warm brown of ornate, probably original, bookcases. Hopper clicked the door closed behind him and nodded in polite greeting to the other parents standing nearby. They were, Hopper noted, mostly the men, while around the large circular table that occupied most of the room sat the mothers and aunts, their attention fixed on the woman who sat at the head of the table, directly opposite the door. The woman was young and wore a red patterned scarf over her head, and sitting on the table in front of her was nothing but a goddamn crystal ball. Hopper's jaw tightened, but he resisted the urge to check his watch. He felt uncomfortable and out of place, apparently the only man present who hadn't taken an invitation to a child's birthday party as an opportunity to dress up. The other fathers were clad mostly in wide lapel sports jackets in varying earthen shades, with ties to match. Ah, yes, the Model T jacket and tie. Any color you like, so long as it's brown. Suddenly, Hopper didn't feel quite so bad in his red plaid shirt and blue jeans. At least he was comfortable. Polyester in this heat was not a wise decision, as some of the men around him seemed to have discovered, given the red faces and sheen of sweat on several of them. Hopper hid his grin in his wine glass as he drained it, and turned his attention to the scene unfolding in the middle of the room, where Diane sat with the other women, most clad in long, flowing cotton dresses that looked a lot more breathable than the men's fashion choices leaning in to listen as the fortune teller stared into the crystal ball and pretended to read the future of, was it Cindy, Tom's mother? Hopper had lost track. Suddenly he felt like another glass of wine. The fortune teller droned on. She was younger than Hopper would have expected, although he wasn't really sure what age group fortune tellers were supposed to be. Weren't they meant to be old women? Not that it mattered. This was an act nothing more. Hopper told himself to relax, enjoy the show, stop being such a jerk. The round of applause that came next snapped Hopper out of his reverie. He looked around the room and saw that the women at the table were shuffling themselves along, so the next subject was now sitting opposite the fortune teller. It was Diane. She laughed at something her neighbor said, then glanced over her shoulder. Her eyes lit up when she saw Hopper, 
and she waved at him to come over. With a sheepish look to his fellow fathers, Hopper moved forward to stand behind Diane's chair. His wife held her hand out and he squeezed it. Then she looked back up at him with a smile. He grinned back. Hey, what are you looking at me for? Madame Mystique here is going to see your future. At that, the fortune teller laughed. She pushed back her scarf a little and looked at Hopper. The past, the present, the future. All ways, all paths are open to me. She waved her hands over the crystal ball. Diane grinned and, taking a deep breath, straightened in her chair and closed her eyes. She let her breath out slowly through her nose. Okay, she said. Lay it on me. The room cheered and the fortune teller, fighting to hold back her own laughter, rolled her neck and stared intently into the crystal ball, her palms flat on the table either side of it. The fortune teller didn't speak. Hopper watched as her gaze narrowed, her brows knitting together as she appeared to concentrate. There were some murmurs from the back of the room as some of the men lost interest. And then, I, oh, the fortune teller jerked back from the crystal ball. Hopper laid his hand on his wife's shoulder and felt her hand rest on his. The fortune teller closed her eyes, her features twisted as though she was in pain. Hopper felt Diane's grip tighten around his hand. Hopper started to feel a little uneasy. This was an act, and none of it was real. But something in the room had changed, the lighthearted feeling of fun suddenly evaporating. He cleared his throat. The fortune teller opened her eyes and tilted her head as she looked into the crystal. I see, I see. Then she shook her head and closed her eyes, screwing them shut tight. There's darkness, a cloud. No, it's like a wave spreading out, sweeping over, sweeping over. Diane shifted in her chair and looked up at Hopper. Light, there's, the fortune teller grimaced like she'd just bitten into a lemon. There's, no, it's not light, it's an absence, a void. Dark, a cloud, like a wave coming in, sweeping over, over. The fortune teller gasped. Diane jumped in fright, along with half of the people in the room. Hopper shook his head. Hey, if this is some kind of joke. The fortune teller shook her head again and again and again. A darkness. There is nothing but darkness. A great cloud, serpent black. I think that's enough, said Hopper. The darkness is coming. A night with no end. A day with no dawn. The day of the- I said that's enough. Hopper thumped the table with his hand. The fortune teller's eyes snapped open and she gulped a lungful of air. She blinked several times as she looked around the faces in the room, her own expression one of surprise, like she had just woken from a deep sleep. Then everyone started talking at once. The women started to leave their seats quickly, suddenly embarrassed at having taken part in the game, while their husbands muttered to one another at the back. Diane stood. Hopper put an arm around her shoulders. You okay? Diane nodded, rubbing her forehead. 
Yeah, I'm fine. She turned and gave him a weak smile. Hopper turned back to the fortune teller. Look, I don't know what this is supposed to be, but this is a kid's birthday party, for Christ's sake. You want to scare people? Maybe you should save it for Halloween. The fortune teller looked up at Hopper, her face still blank, her eyes narrowed like she was trying very hard to follow what he was saying. Around them, the other parents were filtering out of the room. Hopper turned to follow. Are you okay? asked Diane. Hopper looked around but found she wasn't talking to him. She was talking to the fortune teller, who was massaging her temples. Uh, yeah, listen, she said. I'm sorry about that. Really, I am. I'm not sure what came over me. Yeah, I'm sure, said Hopper. He pulled Diane's shoulder, moving her away from the table toward the door. Just before they left the room, Hopper looked back. The woman left sitting at the table suddenly looked even younger than before. The big red scarf and crystal ball suddenly ridiculous. I'll be talking to Susan and Bill about this, said Hopper. Jim, just leave it, said Diane, shaking her head. Hopper frowned, exhaled hotly through his nose, then left the room. As soon as they entered the hallway, he found his anger abating as Sarah came barreling toward them with the other children, a white paper bag with red stripes clutched in one hand, and in the other, a brown cardboard box with square holes cut in the side. The top folded to form a sturdy handle, which she squeezed until her knuckles went whiter. Hey, kid, what have you got there? said Hopper as he knelt down to pick up his six-year-old daughter. Birthday cake and a pet rock. Everyone got one. It's called Molly. Okay, said Hopper slowly, tilting the box containing the pet rock with his fingers as Sarah held it up for him to have a look. Do you think Molly will want some birthday cake? Don't be silly, Daddy. Molly only drinks lemonade. Of course she does. Hopper turned to Diane, his mouth in an open O of surprise, eyebrows high. Hey. That means more cake for us. Diane laughed and tugged at his elbow. Come on, let's go, she said, and turned to follow the other parents and children as they filed toward the front door. Waiting for them in the entrance hall were two entertainers from the children's group, both dressed as Uncle Sam for Independence Day. They were handing out little American flags on short sticks, at the end of which was tied a small paper bag of candy, one to each child as they went past. Sarah thrust her pet rock box at her dad, freeing her hand to grab the offered bag. What do you say, Sarah? asked Diane. Thank you, Mr. Clown. Together, the trio walked down the steps leading to the sidewalk, the other party guests disappearing into the fleet of cars that had taken up nearly all the space available in the street. For the hoppers, they could walk. Home was not far, and no sooner had they taken a few paces down the street than Hopper felt Sarah tugging on his hand. He let her go, happy to have her burn off some excess energy as they headed for their own apartment just a few blocks away. Diane linked her arm through her husband's and leaned her head against his shoulder as they slowly walked. Great party, she said. Yeah, great party, said Hopper.
I spent the whole time terrified I was going to spill red wine over something I couldn't possibly pay for. Then we get a prediction of a coming apocalypse from a prophet of doom. He lifted the box. Oh, and we have a new and unexpected addition to the family. Yeah, great party. I can't wait for next year. Diane laughed and pulled away from Hopper, playfully punching the shoulder she had just been leaning against. Oh, come on, it wasn't that bad. Lisa just got... She tailed off, her hands rolling in the air as she tried to come up with an explanation. Lisa? Lisa Sargison, the fortune teller. She's actually one of the parents, and does magic as a kind of side business. Fortune telling is magic? Well, it wasn't just fortune telling. Actually, she did some pretty good escapology tricks with locks and chains. Janice McGann volunteered and got locked up in cuffs, and she nearly had a heart attack when Lisa said she didn't have the key. At this, Hopper smiled. So what was with the fortune telling anyway? Lisa Sargison just got, what, carried away? Diane shrugged. Lost in the moment. Hopper gave a low whistle. Some moment. Some party. You can say that again. I mean, Sarah's whole class was there with all the parents. But I swear the hired help outnumbered us all. And entertainment for the adults, too? Now, tell me Susan and Bill weren't just showing off. Well, said Diane, I had a good time, even if you didn't. No, I didn't say that. You didn't have to. I saw the way you were. I told you, I was afraid of making a mess. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. James Hopper, said Diane, once again linking her arm through her husband's. You were tense the whole time. You need to learn how to relax. Hopper opened his mouth to speak, then closed it. He shrugged, only to find his shoulders refused to come down again. It's just, just what? I mean, that house, those people. Okay, the Palmers are a nice family, but they're not like us. They're not like any of the parents. I mean, they only didn't have the party out at their place in the Hamptons because they knew nobody would be able to afford the gas just to get out there. That's not true, said Diane with a smirk. Yeah, well, said Hopper, finally getting his shoulders to relax. Maybe not. But really, that house? Come on, normal people don't live like that. And they have so much money, why do they send the twins to public school? Hey, that school is just fine. I wouldn't teach there, certainly wouldn't let Sarah go there if it wasn't. I know, I know, said Hopper. But there must be dozens of fancy private places they could send their kids to. I mean, wouldn't you, if you could afford it? Sarah's school may be just fine, but come on, this is the New York public school system we're talking about. And if I didn't think the New York public school system works, I certainly wouldn't be giving it my blood, sweat, and tears. Now, would I? Diane looked up at Hopper. You're not the only one trying to make a difference here, Jim. I didn't come to this city just to cheer you on from the sidelines. Sometimes you need to remember that. Hopper nodded and drew his wife back to his side as they walked on. Sure, NYC had problems, but Sarah's school was a good one. Hopper knew how lucky Diane was to have been placed there, given the current state of education in the city.
She told him about other schools where she'd heard the teachers sometimes didn't even show up for class, how kids as young as 12 might pass a bottle of wine around between them while the teacher sat at the front, unwilling to intervene, knowing any attempt to assert authority would be ignored if it wasn't met with violence. And sure, those were extreme examples, but there were times when the whole city felt like an extreme example. Virtually bankrupt, with public services crumbling alongside the infrastructure. Welcome to New York City, 1977. Not that Hopper regretted their decision to move there. Far from it. For him, it was precisely the right thing to do at precisely the right time. Coming back from Vietnam, returning to Hawkins, Indiana, had been like stepping into some kind of parallel universe. He'd given his blood and his sweat, and he sometimes thought a part of his sanity, to fighting a war that didn't seem to end, that was being fought for no kind of reason he could really understand. And meanwhile, life in small-town USA had entered some kind of loop in time, changing not one iota by the time he got back. Hopper wondered if it really ever would, or even could. He'd been restless, and he hadn't tried to hide it. Diane's arrival in 69 had been a welcome distraction. The romance that soon blossomed was followed by the birth of their daughter, Sarah, in 71. And that helped. For a while, anyway. But Hawkins, Indiana was still Hawkins, Indiana. Domestic bliss could last only so long. Hopper needed something else, something bigger, somewhere bigger, somewhere like New York City. Truth be told, Diane had taken some persuading, and occasionally Hopper still felt a pang of guilt. As much as she supported him and wanted him to do what he felt he needed to do, moving from Hawkins to New York was a big move in more ways than one. Hawkins was small and soporific. But they'd made a home there, a family. It was safe, and it was comfortable. And with the memories of Vietnam fast receding, it was easy. Perhaps that was the problem. Safe and comfortable and easy was just great. But Hopper soon realized that wasn't what he wanted. Two tours of Vietnam had changed him. And he'd come back and found himself sinking into suburban oblivion. He had seen the signs early. So had Diane, and for that he was grateful. He leaned on her support, without which, well, he didn't know what might have happened. He'd seen what had happened to others who had gone out and come back and then not been able to cope. Hopper needed a change, so they made one. They moved to New York, a big city, a city in trouble, a city in need of help. Hopper knew he could do it. He knew it would be hard a baptism of fire in a city that some people had started calling a hell on earth, even then, before the proverbial had really hit the fan. But it was what he wanted, what he needed. So in the spring of 1972, Diane said yes. She agreed with his arguments. Now was the time to do it, while they were still young and capable of forging a new path through life. It would be good for all of them. Hopper's record stood him in good stead. He'd joined the Hawkins PD when he'd returned from service. Three and a half years of solid police work and a handful of commendations combined with his military experience 
to earn him a place in a fast-track recruitment program in the understaffed New York City Police Department, turning beat cops with special experience straight into much-needed detectives. After a few short months of uniform work to learn as much about the city and the department as he could, Hopper found himself with a shield in his pocket and a desk to call his own. He put in the work, put in the hours, and it didn't go unnoticed. As budget cuts and personnel reductions swept through the department, he was promoted again, this time to homicide. Hopper had never been happier. True, they didn't have much, and that was what had really grated so badly at the Palmers, that gratuitous display of wealth, but they were happy. They had an apartment in a Brooklyn neighborhood that wasn't so bad, not really. A placement for Diane at an elementary school that was fine, really. Middling, could be better, could be worse. Sarah was a capable kid, and although she had only just started first grade, she was doing well. And Diane was there, not to handhold, but just to keep an eye out. This was New York City, after all. Hopper felt a sharp tug on his leg, breaking him out of his daydream. Looking down, he saw Sarah pulling with all her might on his knee. Their building was just a few doors away. Come on, come on, said Sarah. It's time for more cake, Daddy. Yes, because if there is one thing this young lady needs, it's another overdose of sugar, said Hopper, laughing as he lifted his daughter onto his hip, while Diane walked ahead and unlocked the front door. He was about to follow her in, but instead bumped into her back as she paused. What is it? Diane looked at her husband. Is that the telephone? Hopper listened. She was right. There was a telephone ringing from somewhere above them, from their apartment, which occupied the second level. Here, said Hopper, swinging his body around so he could pass Sarah over to Diane. I'll see if I can get it. It could be important. Daughter safely in her mother's arms, Hopper took the stairs two at a time. Hello? Hop, you are a hard man to track down, said a female voice. It was fairly deep and had a smoker's rasp. Hopper knew that voice well. I should hope so too, Delgado, he said. It's Independence Day, and the only duty I had today was taking Sarah to a birthday party. Yeah, well, I need to invite you to a different kind of party altogether. Hopper felt his pulse quicken. If Detective Rosario Delgado, his partner of six weeks, had been trying to call him on his day off, then he knew she had a damn good reason. And standing by the telephone on the wall next to the refrigerator, he had a feeling he knew just what that reason was. Behind him, he heard Diane and Sarah enter the apartment. As the pair walked into the kitchenette, Diane looked expectantly at her husband. He met her eye and gave a small nod of the head. Hey, mission control to Detective James Hopper. Come in, please. He pulled the telephone mouthpiece back around. Sorry. He paused. It's another one, isn't it? You should get down here, soon as you can fix it. Hopper nodded. I'm already on my way. What's the address? He turned around, looking for a pen and paper, only to find Diane had fetched from the counter the small pad they used for grocery lists and was holding it and a pen out for him. He mouthed his thanks at her, then turned and held the notepad against the wall near the phone. Delgado gave him the details, and he jotted them down. Okay, got it, he said. 
I'll be right there. I'll have the red carpet waiting, said Delgado. Then the line clicked off. Hopper put the phone back on the cradle. He felt Diane's hands on his shoulders. He reached up and took them and turned around in a tight circle. Uh, listen, he began. Diane nodded. You have to go. I have to go. I'm sorry. Diane smiled. Do not apologize, she said. Never apologize for doing your job. I'll make it up to you. I'll hold you to that. Slipping out of her embrace, Hopper headed for the door. He opened it and turned around, his hand still on the doorknob. I'll call and let you know where I am, he said. Then he looked over at Sarah, who was already busy with her cake at the kitchenette's small dining table. Hey, leave some for me, kid. Sarah looked up at him and smiled, her face covered in red and blue icing. Diane gave Hopper a kiss on the cheek. Stay safe. Hopper kissed her on the lips. That's the plan, he said, and then he left, closing the door behind him. Chapter Two, The Third Victim. July 4th, 1977, Brooklyn, New York. What a mess, what a mess. Hopper glanced at the uniformed officer, unsure whether the offered opinion was regarding the state of the apartment or the nature of the crime. Both, he thought, as he stepped cautiously down the hallway, keeping his hands curled into fists, careful not to touch anything or get in the way of the small army of cops who seemed to fill the place. He looked around, taking mental snapshots, as he did with every crime scene. Sure, there would be photographs taken from every conceivable angle, and someone would draw a layout, and someone else would measure everything and mark every item of interest with a little yellow flag, but nothing would beat the time actually spent at the scene, in person, seeing the place with your own eyes, getting a feel for the location, the layout, the setting, the relationships between one room and another, one object and another. But the cop was right. The place was a mess. The hallway was lined with bags of junk, none of which looked like they had moved in a while, and as Hopper glanced into the adjoining rooms as he moved down the hallway toward the actual scene of the crime, he saw more of the same, the entire place seemingly filled with trash. There was no particular smell that Hopper could discern, other than the general staleness that came with hot air trapped inside a closed apartment in a heat wave. That changed the closer he got to the crime scene. The characteristic rancid butcher's block smell of death made itself known soon enough. Given the heat, Hopper was surprised it wasn't worse. Detective Hopper, so nice of you to drop by. Hopper turned to see his partner, Detective Rosario Delgado, standing in one of the doorways he had just passed, her hands on her hips. She was wearing blue bell-bottom jeans with a six-inch-wide brown belt and a lighter blue polo shirt opened as far as it would go, her detective's medallion hanging on a chain around her neck, the gold badge bouncing on the lowest button of her top. Seeing the badge reminded Hopper of his own, which he pulled from his back pocket and clipped onto the front of his own belt. Delgado watched him, a smirk growing on her olive features. Nice shirt she said. Don't tell me, the party was fancy dress and you went as a lumberjack. 
Hopper glanced down, suddenly self-conscious in his straight jeans, red checkered shirt, and Cuban-heeled Chelsea boots. What can I say? I like plaid. And I bet it drives all the girls wild. He gestured at her own clothes. Talking of dress code, Delgado shrugged. I was on my way to Studio 54 when we got the call. Really? Hell no. It's hot. What am I supposed to do? Come on. She led the way down the hall. Hopper followed. The hall ended in another pair of doors, guarded by two more uniformed officers. Delgado entered first, Hopper close behind. He looked around the room first, not so he didn't have to face the horror show in the middle of it, but again to take it all in. The room, the decor, the dimensions, the relationships, the scene. It was a bedroom, the walls done out in a brown striped wallpaper that didn't look old and didn't look new. There was a rectangular window with green striped curtains that let in a decent amount of light. The floor was carpeted in a busy blue and red floral pattern. There was a set of drawers in a brown wood that didn't match the hue of the walls. And there was a circular shaving mirror on top. There was no chair in the room, but there was a single bed. It looked like it had been slept in and then the bedclothes roughly put back into place without much care or interest. The room was relatively free of trash, relatively being the operative word. Only then did Hopper allow his attention to be taken by the object on the bed, the thing that made this crummy apartment a crime scene, the body of the latest victim. Delgado pointed to the bed. Okay, so same old, same old. Victim is male, late thirties, in good shape, apart from most of his blood being on the outside of his body. Hopper stepped closer as Delgado took one step back to give him some room. The victim was lying face up on the bed and he was dressed, blue dress trousers, white shirt with the sleeves rolled up. His feet dangled off the end of the bed and they were clad in black socks and black shoes that had a good polish on them. His head had fallen just short of the pillow. The bedspread was a heavy brown material that had turned almost black around the victim's torso where it had soaked up the blood. The man's chest was a mess. His white shirt was torn open and Hopper could see a familiar pattern of darker stripes on the skin. He took a deep breath and folded one arm around his middle, his hand cradling his elbow as he stroked his chin. He shook his head. Same as the others, he said. Same as the others, said Delgado. Stabbed five times, then slashed between the entry wounds to form a five-pointed star, said Hopper. A goddamn five-pointed star. He glanced at his partner. Everything else the same? She nodded. Yes, she said. No signs of forced entry. No signs of struggle. No reports about noise or anything suspicious from the neighbors. Hopper looked around the room again. He walked over to the window and carefully peered between the partially drawn curtains. So who found him? That would be the building super, said Delgado. Apparently someone complained about the smell, so he let himself in. We get a statement? We did. He's being very cooperative. Hopper nodded and turned back to the window. Outside was a Brooklyn street like any other. There were some cars parked on the curb. Another car cruised down the lane, engine purring. 
An older man wearing a white vest and black fedora walked on by, while in the other direction, a younger woman led a young girl by the hand, the high-necked floral print dresses of both billowing like sails in what little breeze there was. A street like any other. A street like his, the one where he and Diane and Sarah made their home. And okay, their apartment was a step or two above this place, but did that make any difference, really? Someone's private space had been invaded here. Someone had been killed in their own home. That made everything equal. Didn't matter who you were or where you lived. He didn't know who the man on the bed was, but he could have. What if it had been Diane? Hopper pushed the thoughts out of his mind. Being a cop was one of those jobs where everyone told you that you couldn't let it get personal. Where every textbook and manual and training program said that you had to come to it with a certain detachment. Otherwise it would tear you apart, which was true. Hopper knew that. But he also knew that if it wasn't personal, then, then why the hell would he do it? The trick, the answer, was to control it before it controlled him. He looked down at the street. Outside, the world went on as usual. Inside was another story, but he took a breath and cleared his head and got back to the job. So for those of us keeping score at home, said Delgado somewhere behind him, that's the third victim. The crime scene is identical. The method of killing is identical. Everything is identical. Hopper closed his eyes and pinched the bridge of his nose. I don't need to ask if uh, another one was left, do I? No, you do not. He turned around. Delgado was already holding the evidence bag out to him. He looked at it for a moment, then took it and turned it over in his hands. Inside the clear plastic bag was a card. It was rectangular, but larger than a playing card, maybe twice as big. One side was blank, white. Hopper turned it over in his hand, knowing exactly what was going to be on the other side. He was not disappointed. The card had a shape on it. Three short, wavy lines running in tight parallel across the narrow width of the card, neatly drawn by hand with a thick brush in heavy black ink. The symbol was different from those on the cards found at the previous crime scenes, but it was clearly part of the same set. Add one to the collection, said Delgado. She reached behind her neck and lifted her wavy black hair up, trying to get some respite from the stuffiness of the room. I suggest we leave it to the professionals now. This heat is starting to get to me. Hopper nodded, handing the card back. Delgado took it and handed it to a crime scene technician who was standing by the doorway. Then she walked out. Hopper hung back a moment, taking another look at the body and then at the scene. Hopper held his breath. Three victims, each stabbed five times, the wounds joined together as the killer carved a star into the bodies. Three victims, same M.O. That settled that. Brooklyn had its very own serial killer, dispatching his victims in some kind of ritualistic way. Hopper let out his breath and left the scene. As if New York City didn't have enough on its plate. December 26th, 1984. Hopper's Cabin, Hawkins, Indiana. The third? 
Hopper looked down into his coffee mug. It was empty already. One mug drained and he'd only just gotten started. He was going to have to pace himself. Across the table from him, Elle shook her head, her mouth a lopsided curl of confusion. Hopper stood and headed toward the coffee pot in the kitchen. Yeah, that was the third one, said Hopper, topping himself off. We've been working the case for almost two months at that point. Two murders the same, that forms a pattern, and clearly we're looking for the same person. But three murders turns it into something else. That was when we really knew we had a serial killer to catch. L's eyes narrowed in concentration. Like breakfast? She asked, drawing the word out, uncertain. Hopper dropped back into his chair. Oh no, not cereal. Cereal. He spelled it out for her. A serial killer is, well, it's someone who kills a lot of people. Like Papa? She asked. Papa? Then it dawned on him. She meant Brenner, Dr. Brenner, the monster responsible for her laboratory-bound upbringing. Ah, crap. No, this is different. He was different. It's complicated. Listen. He paused and drank some coffee. Was he really doing this? Suddenly it seemed like a very bad idea. Elle was in many ways younger than her physical age. And now he was telling her about New York in the 1970s, and that time he faced off against a serial killer? That was too much. He sighed and rubbed his face. I'm not sure this is a good idea, really. I mean, Elle sat bolt upright. Don't stop now. Hopper sighed, again. You're really sure about this? Because, but what happened? Because I don't want to be giving you nightmares for the next year, okay? Elle looked at Hopper with her customary intensity. The silence stretched between them before Elle finally spoke. Go back to the start. The start? The story is long enough as it is. And the first two murders were the same. Like I said, it was on the third one that things began to happen. Elle looked at the table. Hopper looked at her from over the rim of his mug. She didn't speak, and Hopper lowered his coffee. Now what? he asked. Beginning, middle, end, said Elle, not lifting her eyes from the table. That's a story. Beginning, middle, end. That's true. Elle looked up at Hopper. Start with Delgado. Delgado? Now that question I can answer. Hopper sipped his coffee and started at the beginning.